I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. We've got a two-part podcast for you today. I'm joined by James Start, Ruler's roving photojournalist, and we're going to talk about the World Road Race Championships in Glasgow, or the men's race, at least. After that, I'm going to talk about one of the features we've got in the latest edition of Ruler, Ruler 121. The feature is called Invisible Cycling Women. Now, a bit of context for Ruler 121, which is out now. We had a special guest editorial panel for that edition, which is our second women's edition. Very exciting magazine to work on. Uh, one of the guest editorial panel was... Isla Roundtree, who came up with the idea for the feature, Invisible Cycling Women. It's a play on the Caroline Criado Perez book, Invisible Women, which explores the many, many ways in which the world is designed by and for men and how this disadvantages women. Isla highlighted how the cycling industry has often been the same. So I'm going to be talking about that and I've got a bit of audio from Isla uh, from my interview with her in researching the piece. But first, the World Championships... James, we were both up in Glasgow over the weekend. First up, if any of our listeners are in Glasgow next weekend, we're running events at the Drygate Brewery. We just came from those last weekend. Really exciting event. We had special guests. We had Nico Roach, Will Tidball, uh, Mick Rogers, Axel Merckx. We had drinks, Zwift races, and lots of like-minded people sharing a really cool space in Glasgow in and around the road races. Check our social media and website for details of that event. But first, let's get to the racing. In the men's road race, a lot happened and very little happened at the same time. We'll we'll get to what I mean by that later. But the big group went quite early on. Quite a strong group. Built a lead of several minutes, was chased and eventually caught. Things split up and reformed. And there's a lot of erosion in the bunch around the urban circuit in Glasgow. The real key strategic move that kicked off the finale was Alberto Betiol going clear at 55 kilometres to go. As a crash actually split the chase. But the real key move of the race, the one that defined the race, the one that won the race, was Mathieu van der Poel attacking on the penultimate lap just as they were closing down Betiol. And that was that. Even a crash didn't prevent him winning by 1.37 ahead of Wout van Aert, who dropped his companions Tadej Pogacar and Mads Pedersen, finishing just ahead of them. Next, fifth place, Stefan Kung, three minutes 48 down. Next decent group behind that was John Dagenkolb, 16th at 8.30. 
the group that was contested 26th place was 14 minutes down, 51 f finishes, both incredibly complex and a very simple race. Very, very, very attritional, very hard, considering there was really not much climbing at all, um, hardly any finish. So, James, reflections on the race, please. It was a beautiful race. Glasgow was a wonderful stage for, for a bike race. Uh, you know, obviously uh, the circuit was met with some criticism, but at the end of the day, it produced one of the great races. And if you look at that podium, nobody can deny it was just an amazing race. And it was, I mean, be it the, the weather, the attacks, be it the attrition, be it whatever. It was a, a beautiful and brutal race that produced a beautiful winner. Let's talk about that circuit and let's talk about Glasgow. Like you said, the circuit came in for some criticism before the race. And I remember middle of last week, I started paying attention to this and I saw the map and saw that it was entirely based in the city and lots of corners, lots of right angles. Normally, that's not the kind of circuit that might get me excited. As soon as I arrived in Glasgow, I got it. Um, I felt that this was a unique circuit I knew it was going to be really tough, and especially having you know after watching the junior race on the circuit, I knew that it's you know, it's it was going to explode. But even aside from the racing, I thought the fact of effectively closing Glasgow and putting this race right in the middle was a bold statement and an innovative one, and also it celebrated Glasgow. Glasgow is, as I learned over the course of the weekend, architecturally fascinating, atmospheric. Uh, interesting, compelling, and I really loved it, James. What did you think of it? Yeah, I absolutely agree. The night before I left, I pulled down a book by the French photographer Raymond Depardon called Glasgow, which he shot uh, in 1980. And it's a bleak picture of the city. It's just he focuses on the neighborhoods where the old tenement houses and factories were. And I didn't quite know what to expect when I got there. I was like, well, this is 1980. And um, there was an introduction in the book by William Boyd who said, you know, well, that's the Glasgow of old. It's a much more, more modern city today. And yet I found it to be a stunning city. Those sentiments are still up. They've been cleaned since then. But they're a testament to a certain time. And, and you know, they're big a lot of the architecture is this big, massive stonework and very muscular, I think you would you could say, very much like the course. And so I thought it was a perfect stage for this race. I just thought it was brilliant. And I had a lo lovely time walking around the light in the cities, so dramatic between rain and sun and its northern light. And the weather is a mixed bag all the time. And the people were wonderful. Everybody I, I talked to was so chatty and the taxi drivers coming in and very proud to have the race there. And so I just, I had a wonderful time. I have wonderful memories and would go back on any occasion. I got the impression the photographers actually quite enjoyed it because it's a real change, isn't it? Obviously, cycling races often take place in beautiful photogenic landscapes and those races have their own beauty and their own charm. And I, I, I love those as well. But, you know, Glasgow is Glasgow. Bike races, as we always say in this podcast and in the magazine, it takes place in the real world. You can't separate bike racing from the real world. And just because this is a city aesthetic doesn't make it any less photogenic or beautiful than uh, a race in mountains. Bike racing is a sport of the people. And so sometimes it's a bit of a pain for the people to get to the bike race. This bike race was put front and centre in you know one of, one of the UK's great cities and looking at the photography that has come out of it you know I, I saw your image your side on image is a very big building with the road on the very steep hill 
with the diagonal of the road and the, the horizontal lines of the building, the windows. But that had its own beauty, I thought. I thought it was a really dramatic backdrop. It absolutely was. I learned, actually, on my way back, I was chatting with the, the, the woman who was um, in the seat next to me. She's from Glasgow. She said she actually lives in one of the old tenement houses and went to school in that building. That's the university. And it's a historic university. And it's a beautiful structure that sits atop that, the you know, or, or just that lines the, you know, the Montrose Hill climb, which was the trophy climb of the race where so much happened. All of us photographers spent a lot of time that day on that climb. There were just, just that one climb and that one, and that building and the, the pitch of that climb and the backdrop offered so much photographically and you know i spent the last couple laps i was like okay uh, am i going to get the guys coming up from this angle or this angle there were so many possibilities there and that's just about what 200 meter climb and then you had the rest of the 14 kilometer circuit they went all through the city in the different neighborhoods the you know lush neighborhoods and more working class neighborhoods and i think their one of their goals was to really bring the city together and show off the entire city. I loved it. it. There were a lot of turns, but other than that, and I can tell you when I was in the back of the shuttle bus for the photographers, we have they have shuttle buses that take us and drop us at different spots. It turned out that Malcolm Elliott, the ex-pro, was my driver. And we're whizzing around this course. It was a hard time just sitting up straight, I'll tell you that. I mean, it was a sinuous course, but it was a beautiful course. I thought it was a great advert for the city. On a racing level, you know, that, that sinuous course did make it very hard for the riders, didn't it? It felt like there was a very different rhythm to the race than the usual world championships or even any other race. Really. I'm, I'm struggling to think of any world tour race or any world championships that's comparable in any way to this because the rhythm was that there was no rhythm, wasn't it? It was short bursts of effort, stopping, starting, slowing, accelerating. And there was no no time to settle into a groove or a regular rhythm because the next corner was coming up fast. Absolutely. It's funny because when I was in the airport coming back, I ran into Bernard Hinault. And, uh, you know, I've known Bernard for years. And we were chatting a bit. And I said, ah, Bernard, this would have been a good course for you back in the day, huh? Because if you remember when Bernard Hinault won the World Championships in 1980 in Salonche, it went up this climb and down. And basically it was up and down. And, and it was like this course. You had to race at the front. You're going to only lose energy being on the back trying to catch back up. And I thought it'd be a perfect race for him. And he looked at me and said, I would have liked it with a lot less turns. That was a huge part of the race because it was like this extended criterion for 270 plus kilometers, right? Well, not not really because you have the first sections until you get to the city. But for well over 100 kilometers, they're basically riding a city crit with the elastic band, you know, stretching and breaking all the time. And you had to be at the front for over 100K. And only those guys that could do that were at the front. And Bernard said, you know, was it really necessary to have all those turns? Could we have maybe just gone straight a couple of times? At the end of the day, they created this circuit. It was to the liking of some, Matthew Vanderpool, <laughs> and not others, uh, but it will go down as a as an epic, memorable world championships. My opinion, I think, on this is that it was brilliant. It was unique and they shouldn't do this too often. I don't think people should conclude that just because that we had this one epic race that we should start going in this direction for races. I, I think in a way it was it was too selective. To me, it's like the modern iteration of the Tour of Flanders route, the well, the current route that finishes in Odnard. The good thing about the Tour of Flanders route at the moment is it's really, really hard 
and you always get an illustrious winner and a deserving winner. Um, the, uh, the bad thing about it is it's too hard. You only get the same people riding at the front. And I felt with this race, as a one-off, fine, but I don't want racing to be too predictable. I could see, watching the race, James, that there were going to be a very, very small number of people in at the finish. And, and I kind of knew it was going to be Van der Poel, Van Aert, uh, Pedersen, Pogacar. We chatted a bit at the time about Evnepol having a disappointing day, but I think Evnepol was always going to have a disappointing day because he likes a, a smooth, steady effort. And this course was like the Tour of Flanders. It was super hard, one for very, very strong riders. And my favourite thing in bike racing is when somebody can use brains to outwit the strongest rider and that was never ever going to happen on this course nice to happen once not every time please even if you do end up with you know a podium for the ages absolutely pretty much most of the guys that i you know i've been following they were happy to finish you know i think van art has to i mean van art was i'm certainly disappointed to get second but he rode well Pogachar was very happy to get third. He knows that was the absolute best place he could get. But even guys like John Degenkolb, who got like 16th, he wrote about it and just said, brutal race. We knew it was going to be brutal. We gave it our all. I got 16th. I'm proud of that because that's, it was, I'm proud just to simply finish this race. So it brought out the best in everybody and forced the best in everybody. You're right. The, I think it was a course that sorted the riders into a hierarchy of strongest to well through through to through to the weakest i guess i mean i say weakest this is a comparative term and the only my only two thoughts about the composition of the top 15 or 20 or so is that i think matthew dinham rode cleverly because he got himself into that break and then hung on came seventh i don't think he'd have come seventh if it had been ridden a la pedal but that was a, a slight discrepancy and also alberto betiol would have finished higher if he had not been so bold in attacking. But, you know, that, that's bike racing. And I'm glad Betty Old did that. He kicked off the racing in earnest. But let's talk about the winner, James, because Matthew van der Poel, this year alone, he's won Milan-San Remo, just to take his road wins into account as well. Milan-San Remo, Paris-Roubaix and the Worlds. Um, he's previously won Tour of Flanders, Strade Bianche and Amstel Gold and got a few reflections about that. First, I've done a bit of back of the envelope research. I've not been too diligent about this, so I might I might have missed out some, but to win three major races, and I include just the Monuments and the Worlds, just those six races, to win three of those in a season, as van der Poel has done, is vanishingly rare. I think listeners can Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Merckx did it four times. Typical Merckx. He did it with a variety of different events. He did it in 1969, 71, 72 and 75. Tom Bonin did it in 2005 with the Tour Flanders, Paris-Roubaix and the Worlds. And I think Matthew van der Poel is the only other rider to win three of those six big road races in a single season, which is a huge achievement. The other reflection I have, James, is I can't think of anything else that he really needs to win. I mean, he's he's won all the races that he would be a, a favourite for. Would he be interested in Liège-Bastogne-Liège and Il-Lombardia? Yeah, maybe they're too hard for him. So he's completed the set in a way, hasn't he? I mean, he's had an extraordinary few years. It's been an amazing few years. This year was the crowning achievement. His victory, as he said himself, was part 
satisfaction, part revenge. He's been close a couple times. Uh, he's you know always been a favorite and come up short. And this year it all came together in races like Perry Roubaix and the Worlds. Brilliant racing. It was funny as we walked around uh, Friday or Saturday and just talking with people. You know, who do you pick today? The amount of people that didn't just say, oh, Vanderpool. The amount of people that said, I hope Vanderpool really struck me. I think people really wanted to see him win because he's he's such a giving rider and he goes for it. You know, he doesn't calculate and he and when he's on, he's just, he's monumental. I think that everybody was like, he would be a perfect winner here. It would be so great to see him when it'd be such a fairy tale kind of worlds if he actually did it. Um, and yet, you know, to win the worlds, to have it all come together on that one day, it takes so much, not just like in peaking, but just sheer luck sometimes. I mean, look, a guy crashed in the last, what, 10, 15K. I mean, his race almost was over out of bad luck. I remember talking to Boonen before the World Championships in Qatar, where all of a sudden he was looking like a pretty big favorite. I mean, he'd won Qatar several times. He was a world champion, great one-day rider. I said, what do you think? He said, yeah, on paper, it looks great for me, but it's hard to understand what it takes to win the world. And on that day, everything, every detail has to fall in your favor and you can't control half of those things. So for it to happen for Van der Poel, I just think everybody's really happy for him. Uh, and his runner-up, uh, Wout van Aert, do you think he'll be disappointed at that result? I mean, it's, it's hard to say with him because he's come close to the Worlds before. He's been arguably in the shadow of van der Poel in terms of their results in one-day races in the last couple of years because we're still waiting for Van Aert to win the Tour of Flanders. I can't believe he hasn't won the Tour of Flanders before. Um, still waiting for him to win the Worlds. He's both blessed and cursed with the strongest team in the world at the moment, the Belgian team. And he was the second strongest rider on the day, clearly, but couldn't follow van der Poel. I mean, maybe it's a case of peaking at the right time and on a different day, van Aert would have van der Poel's measure. But... It's not exactly that time is running out for Wout van Aert, is it? But I'm keen to see when and how he's going to finally win his rainbow jersey. Well, let's just say that uh, I think everybody would be very happy when he does as well, because he's very deserving too. Will he be disappointed? I'm sure he'll be disappointed. He came here to win. At the same time, he had a lot going on. He was in the Tour de France working for uh, the yellow jersey as long as he could. Then he had to go home early uh, as his wife gave birth. And anybody who's been a parent knows those first couple of weeks with a newborn are always, you know, a bit crazy. Your sleep cycles get compromised sometimes. Who knows what was going on? Maybe the calendar and whatever, the preparation just didn't fall in his favor. But, um, yeah, I mean, his, his time is not running out for him. He's still got plenty of time. And I think he will have his day at some point. Uh, when? I don't know. But um, he may have to pick and choose a little bit more because he's giving up so much of the tour for his team. I'm not saying that Vanderpool was. I mean, Vanderpool was like a three-man lead out for just <laughs> Philipson. But uh, he doesn't have to be there on certain stages where Van, uh, where, where, uh, Van Art is still expected to play a role. So who knows? But um, I'm sure he's disappointed. But uh, at the same time, he had a lot going on that can explain why he might have just been that 0.5% less. Yeah, that's that's true, actually. In, at the Tour de France, Wout van Aert has had a better record than van der Poel, and he's had more impact on the race, and that has to be taken into account as well. I'm fascinated by the, the rivalry. I, I kind of get a small kick out of the fact that they seem not to 
you know, they're, they're in each other's way. They've been in each other's way for a long, long time now, from, from junior days all the way through to now. And I like the fact that there's an element of spikiness, of tension, because you know, it's, it's never unseemly, it's never hostile, but that tension, I think, elevates the rivalry. And also, I presume, Wout van Aert will use this as motivation and impetus. Yeah, it, it's not unlike the rivalry that's building now uh, with Pogacar and Vingegaard, um, although it's uh, a much younger one. You know, they haven't been butting heads since juniors, right? But, you know, these guys are not friends and the tension is just always there because they both want to win the same races. But, you know, I'm just mentioning Pogacar. He got third and you talked about Betio. I mean, there's so many stories that come out of a race like this. I thought Betiol's ride was just brilliant. Thank him for igniting the race. It was a perfect move. It could have paid off. You know, I mean, there was no, there, it could have paid off. There was nobody left to, to chase. Just for our listeners there, I'm shaking my head at James. There. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, hindsight's, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But it was a brilliantly placed move. There were no longer any support riders to chase him down for the leaders. The leaders had to go after him. They did. And they got him, but it was a wonderful move. And then, you know, Pogacar, what do you what do you want to say? He barely had a team. And he just had to stay on the front wheels of the race all day long and hope that he didn't flat, which is a big hope in a race like yesterday with the rains coming and going. And he was clearly spent when Vanderpool went. He was not able to go with him. He was actually the last guy. He was almost getting dropped. And I was on Montrose climb the last two or three circuits. And he was hard to find because he's behind those guys just hanging on and for him to be able to get third was a brilliant ride um and he's very happy about it he rode the way he had to ride he was always in the first six or seven riders round the circuit for, for a long long time and the positive thing is you know he obviously had his tactical head screwed on and he knew that little splits could happen anywhere whether it's third wheel or 20th wheel or, or 50th wheel you have to be ahead of that split. He spent the entire race in the first six or seven. And I think the physical cost of doing that probably took the edge off. Maybe he wouldn't have been able to match Vanderpol ultimately, but it probably took the edge off his ability on, on that climb. But that's, that's, that's bike racing, isn't it? I mean, Van Aert's big advantage was that he did have a lot of Belgian teammates deep into the race. I mean, Benoit and Van Hoydonk both were able to work quite late on. But effectively, the Belgian team and the Danes early on in the day, they were effectively working for those super strong riders. They were working for Van der Poel as well as Van Aert. It suited Van der Poel and Pogacar and, and Pedersen for, for the Belgians to be riding. But yeah, Pogacar, such a versatile talent, winner of the Tour of Flanders, second in the Tour de France, third in the World Championships road race. That's a pretty good Palmares and we're probably going to look back on this season as being one of the less good ones that that he's had. The first rider since Merckx to win Flanders and the tour, be a tour winner and, and Flanders I mean brilliant and that's why he's so fun to watch but all these guys are so fun to watch. Matthew is obviously fun to watch and and Van Art when he puts on a show is is fun to watch. We got a brilliant generation of bike riders right now. It's it's a ton of fun. Yeah I'd add Mads Pedersen to that. I didn't expect him to hang on for as long as he did. I, I presumed yeah, everyone knows what Mads Pedersen's good at. He's got a very fast finish. And the key for everyone else was not to be at the finish with Mads Pedersen. And the race largely evolved around that fact as as well. But he hung on longer than I thought he would. I think 
as with Pogacar, the damage had been done to him. He was unable to sprint, uh, ended up getting out sprinted for third by Tadej Pogacar, which probably wouldn't happen most occasions on a, on a flat, straight sprint after a regular race. But that's just an indication of two things. First, how hard the race was. And second, how quietly versatile Pedersen is as well. He's always there. Uh, and he is a championships specialist. I mean, the guy won the Worlds in 2019 in a brutally hard race and showed just what he can do under the hardest conditions. He's also good with very long races, and this was one of the longest uh, um, world championships. And, you know, I mean, we had rain, we had heat, we had all kinds of stuff going on there in terms of the weather. And um, that's good for him. He can handle that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm sure he's disappointed. He certainly deserved a podium. All four of those guys deserve to be on the podium. Uh, But there's only three spots. And uh, that's all you can say. When I look at the race as a whole, I I think my reaction that it was both incredibly complex and very, very simple is what I'm going to remember about this world. There's one other bit of news that quite early on in the race, the race was halted by protesters from This Is Rigged, who are campaigning for no new oil drilling. Uh, They had a handful of people glue themselves, they actually glued their hands to the road and stopped the race. And it stopped for 50 minutes almost an hour. The television pictures just showed the back of the bunch. We didn't actually see the protesters at all on the television. And there's quite a funny conversation caught on the camera between George Bennett and David Lapatien. I mean, the, the head of the UCI was standing, talking, chatting to the riders. And Bennett was asking, can't we can't we just go round? And I think Lapatien explained that the cars can't get round the protesters. So although Bennett's idea was a good one, there's no race without the, without the rear vehicles. But it obviously caused a bit of controversy. Several different flavours of take on the internet from full support for the protesters to condemnation and the people who condemn this kind of thing often say that cycling politics should be kept apart I mean it's a complicated one but I think I don't subscribe to that view myself I think cycling and politics are very much overlapping Uh, just as cycling overlaps with everything else in the world for better and for worse it also overlaps with politics there are degrees of controversy around cycling sponsors from possibly the most controversial, Saudi Arabia, which has got a terrible human rights record, uh, murdered a journalist in cold blood, putting a lot of money into cycling. There are other petro states, there are companies with poor environmental records. And I think if cycling wants to take money from any entity, uh, cycling also has to be accountable for that. And we have to talk about it. I think the right to protest is something that's should be enshrined in a healthy democracy. So my takeaway from this is no harm done. What are your thoughts on this, James? Well, yes, we'd like cycling and sport not to be um, political. But as my friend Cyril Guimard, uh, the uh, legendary sports director and a pretty good rider in his own day, said to me once, he said, cycling is always a reflection of society. And these protests, they're happening all around the world in all kinds of places. Cycling has always been... A, vulnerable to protests. I mean, how many tour stages were halted by disgruntled union members uh, looking for higher pay wages? Or uh, we've been stopped because some there's some sort of anti-wolf <laughs> association in the, in the Pyrenees, I think, you know, and, and, and people saying you have to do something about the wolves who are eating our chickens and all. I don't know. So it, it, it goes 
we have a long history of social unrest and social dis, uh, protest affecting bicycle racing. It's a reflection, I think, on society, and there's such a sense of, of alienation and, and, and frustration in certain circles, be it with the environment, be it with political power, whatever, that I think these things are just symptomatic of the state of the world today. And you want to have less protests in cycling, maybe, but the world has to be a, in a better space than it is right now. Absolutely. Yeah. And the UCI have a section on their website called uh, the UCI Climate Action Charter. I quote, the IPCC's recent sixth assessment reports makes the evidence extremely clear. The time for action is now. So this is rigged, took that very literally. The time for action was now. That quote by Guimar was years ago, and he was talking about other things, but that cycling does reflect the world in which we live is is so true and you know i mean it's not just on the human level i mean how many bicycle races now are being affected by extreme weather mudslides it's reflective of the current environmental situation for better or worse we're out on public roads we are out on the roads and that's why i love this sport we're not in a stadium and it's always changing and most of the times it's beautiful but we are also vulnerable to all kinds of upheaval be it social be it natural uh, whatever. And, that, and that's just the reality. So, James, final takeaways from Glasgow. I know you enjoyed fish and chips up in Glasgow. Your feedback to me, or you, you asked you asked me if mine was a bit greasy, uh, to which my answer was, yeah. And I went and got a portion of fish and chips after that, just to see with my own eyes. And I was frustrated because mine was not so greasy and didn't have nearly enough salt. And instead of any kind of tartar sauce, we had, uh, was it, I thought it was guacamole, but you corrected me and said, no, that would be mashed, mashed peas. James, I'm so glad you asked me about that. If you'd asked somebody local you know, for more guacamole, you, would, you, you wouldn't be here now. <laughs> uh, Great. But I was kind of, you know, looking for, looking for the salt, but didn't need to look for the salt with the racing. It was just beautiful racing. Look forward to what it's going to do to the women's race. Uh, this weekend. Um, I, I'm going to really be excited to see that. I just expect another brilliant race. I'll be really curious to see how it works with the women's race. I just have very good memories of Glasgow uh, as a city of the people. And, you know, that's one of the objectives for hosting uh, an event like the World Championships is to show off the the, the place. And they did, a, I thought, a tremendous job of it. Everybody was very gracious. Uh, the city was stunning. I, I want to go back. Great. Rula is going to be back at the Worlds next weekend for our event at the Drygate Brewery. Check our socials if you would like to buy a ticket. It's an absolute steal. It's £5 entry and you get a free drink with that. And we had, well, we had one world champion at last weekend's event, uh, Will Tidball. So you, you never know who you're going to meet at those parties. We'll also report on who won the women's road race and why it was Lotta Kopecky. Um, thanks for your help, James. Uh, next up, Invisible Cycling Women. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, now also available on our brand new app. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 121, with the theme, Close the Gap. The mission statement of Rouleur 121 is to get more women on bikes and more women in sport. Though some significant moves have been made towards equality in our sport and towards giving young people male and female role models to support, we haven't reached parity by a long way. Rulo 121 aims to close that gap. To this end, we convened a guest editorial panel of inspiring, talented, powerful women to come up with ideas for features and to highlight not only the challenges we face, 
but to emphasise solutions and positive steps. We were lucky to work with former world champion Lizzie Dignan, our very own columnist, TV presenter Orla Chenoweth, Stephanie Hilborn, who is the CEO of Women in Sport, activist and journalist Jules Walker, TikTok sensation Sydney Cassidy, and the founder of Isla Bikes, Isla Roundtree. Rule 0121 includes features on subjects as diverse as parenthood in professional cycling, how to make sport a more accessible space, an interview with Eritrean cyclist Eru Tesrom Gebru, who sought political asylum in order to pursue her dream of being a professional cyclist, training and racing around the menstrual cycle, why bike design needs to be more inclusive, a profile of cyclist Eileen Sheridan, who broke records and barriers in the 1940s and 1950s, and much, much more. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Ruler 121 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15, PODCAST15, to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. As you probably know by now, the latest edition of Ruler, number 121, is our second women's edition. The first women's edition was number 101. It was guest edited by Orla Shenoui, the TV personality and Ruler columnist. The tagline for 121 is Close the Gap, and this is an acknowledgement that while first steps have been taken towards parity and equality in cycling, and they've been very important, the job is not yet complete. This time around, we had a guest editorial panel one of whom was Isla Roundtree. Isla was a national cyclocross champion, very talented cyclist, and then went on to found Isla Bikes, which makes resilient and good quality bikes for kids who are often underserved by the market. During our panel meeting, Isla started talking about pianos. What's that got to do with cycling? Have a listen to this. I want to talk about pianos, just to illustrate the area. I don't know if any of you have read Caroline Credo Perez's book called Invisible Women, but she talks in there about multiple topics around women and how we're disadvantaged across every aspect of our lives. And a really nice illustration is around piano design. So when pianos were originally designed and the keyboard was designed, the scaling of the keyboard was originally constrained somewhat by manufacturing techniques. But what we've ended up with is a keyboard that's spaced, that is optimised for an above average size male or their hands. And what that means is that if your hands are any smaller than that above average male, that you are far less likely to become a virtuoso pianist. And the reasons are twofold. Um, The first reason is it's just physically more difficult to play well because you're stretching. You can't stretch as big a number of notes but you're also more likely to get a repetitive strain injury, which means, and Lizzie will know, that means your practice time is reduced. So you actually are then not optimising the amount of practice you can squeeze in because you're recovering from injuries rather than training on the piano. What that means for women, because we're talking about something that's designed for slightly above average male, is that means that actually it's suboptimal for most women because our hands are physically smaller. So the chances of you becoming a virtuoso pianist as a woman are dramatically reduced. This immediately got my attention because I play the piano and it had never occurred to me that pianos were too big for over half the population because I can stretch 10 notes no problem, which is generally enough unless you're really into Franz Liszt. So here are some stats. Female piano students outnumber males. Also, women are more likely to become piano teachers than men. However, in the Leeds International Piano Competition, which is held every three years, 
only two out of 20 winners have been female. At the Quadrennial International Tchaikovsky Competition, 16 pianists have won gold medals, of which one has been female. Why, when women are more likely to be piano players, are men dominating the virtuoso piano competitions? It's nothing to do with some mysterious element of the male mind, and a lot to do with the fact that pianos are too big for more than half of women. These facts are from the book Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, which looks into some of the many, many different ways the world has been designed by men for men. Some examples. Women are more likely to die in a car crash, 17% more likely. This is because cars and their safety features are designed around average male bodies. Female crash test dummies weren't even introduced until 2011. Another example. Are you a woman and is your office cold? It probably is, because the formula many companies use to determine office temperature was developed in the 1960s based on the metabolic resting rate of a 40-year-old 70-kilogram man, which is faster than that of the average woman. And, yes, Turns out bike design is sexist too. In a conversation which informed my feature Invisible Cycling Women in Rouleau 121, Isla explained more. I think it's been a drip, drip, drip realisation over 30 or 40 years for me. I'm 54 now and I've been cycling, sort of club cycling almost from the age of 12, but, but completely in love with bikes from a much younger age than that. And it's still something where there's areas that I'm still having eye-opening moments even now, because even though I'm much, much closer to and aware of it from a bicycle point of view, I still have all those, those blind spots. So for me, it started to really become apparent, I suppose, in my very early 20s where... Um, I was I was already involved. I was already in the cycling cycle industry. I was racing. I worked in a bike shop from the age of fifteen, I think, sixteen, and starting to just get frustrated with the limitations of my own bikes. And mm. as, as a as a person with a design bent, of one wanting to just my family background at home. If something wasn't how you wanted it to be, you made it how you wanted it to be. Whether that was altering clothes that didn't fit or your bike or your canoe or that's what we did and so I had that I had that mindset um, and started changing things and the, the the two areas that I think are still have most impact now are brake levers on dropped handlebar bikes and crank things yeah. it sounds so simple but it, and those were things that in my very early 20s I was making adaptations to or making things to fit me better and feeling the impact of that on my cycling as a confident fit capable cyclist and really just how much difference it made to me and then you extrapolate that well to somebody that's starting out that's not confident for whom it still all feels a bit awkward to what are those things not being right what's the impact on them and I, I do believe that for some people the impact is that they don't bother they don't come back to it yeah. but it's not just about that because and i think the phrase that i used when when we had our little online get together with everybody for this edition the phrase that i used was suboptimal yeah so it's not like these things mean you can't ride a bike the experience is suboptimal and for some people it's more suboptimal than others my realization came from these these individual bike parts really and then learning gradually over years and re- i read it i read um, the invisible women book when it was first published and just that was just s- so powerful for me it's like yeah this is in everything that i'm dealing with and i'm still not addressing it fully you need to think more widely about it and i think i think the the way that i've organized the thoughts for myself um through that process since reading the book um is and, and you referred to it just a few moments ago is 
that you've got you've got the male spectrum of sizes from small to large and you've got an average a mean in the middle of that and you've got the female yeah. spread of sizes from small to large and you've got a mean in the middle of that and we probably think that the generic bicycle parts let's say because we're talking about bikes are designed around average man if we take that as a as a okay so they're probably designed to suit average man which means that they are a bigger size than optimal for most women i don't quite know where the spread is but let's say for 80 percent of women because they're designed around average man Isla has been working for years on the big component companies to change their designs. Her company bought enough inventory for her to be able to get time with the design chiefs in major component manufacturers who always seemed receptive to her requests. Yet bike design remains stubbornly one size doesn't quite fit all. In a brief glimmer of hope, Lizzie Diagnan said during our editorial panel meeting that SRAM had been experimenting with smaller brake levers. Though Isla told us a story about walking around the Eurobike exhibition just this year, testing out the display bikes and still not being able to reach the brake levers when in the drops. Like the male-centric design of car safety features is actually causing danger. Most braking is done from the hoods, which is fine for everybody. However, when riding in the drops, being able to brake immediately is crucial. It's not just a matter of comfort, it's a matter of safety. The bike industry has work to do. We'll finish off this edition of Ruler Conversations with a read of my feature from the brand new Ruler app, which includes audio versions of all our magazine stories. This is Invisible Cycling Women. Invisible Cycling Women. This article was written by Edward Pickering. Are bikes sexist? Yes, they are. Component sizes are built to specifications and sizes geared to the average man's hand span, which means they disproportionately disadvantage females. It's time for manufacturers to take this into account. To become a virtuoso pianist, there are certain prerequisites. A talent for music and the discipline to practice for many hours a week for years on end are two of the most important and the original 10,000 hours theory, formulated by psychologist Anders Ericsson and popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, was based on research into the practice habits of musicians. It also helps if you are a man. This is nothing to do with musicality or some kind of pseudo-psychological predisposition for the male mind to better channel the muse. Female piano students outnumber males and women are more likely to become piano teachers than men. But in the prestigious triennial Leeds International Piano Competition, only two out of the 20 winners have been female. 16 pianists have won a gold medal at the quadrennial International Tchaikovsky Competition, of which one was female. At the virtuoso end, men vastly outnumber women. 80% of the prize winners in international piano competitions in the last half century have been male. Maybe, however, if the piano keyboard wasn't too big for the average-sized female hand, the spread would be more like 50, 50. The average female pianist has a hand span of just under 8 inches, which is enough to stretch 9 white notes. The average male pianist's hand span is just under 9 inches, which is enough to stretch 10 white notes comfortably. Most female pianists, around 80%, cannot stretch enough to play a chord where the top and bottom note are 10 apart. The journalist Caroline Criado Perez wrote about how the design of a standard piano was inherently prejudicial to females attaining high levels of performance in her 2019 book, Invisible Women. The book is full of examples of design, society, norms and decisions that have historically prejudiced and even endangered women. Some examples, in a car crash, women are 17% more likely to die, 47% more likely to be seriously injured and 71% more likely to be moderately injured because cars are designed around the size of the average male. Women are smaller on average, therefore pull the seat forward 
and sit more upright, putting them in a more vulnerable position. Crash test dummies were introduced in the 1950s based on male proportions and sizes. A female model wasn't introduced until 2011. Even the austerity policies of the British government in the 2010s inherently favoured men. Public transport funding faced cuts, while road building was a curious exception to reductions in government spending. Of course, men are more likely than women to drive, while women disproportionately use more public transport. Each of these examples take up a page or two in the book. The book is over 300 pages long. Isla Roundtree, who founded Isla Bikes and is part of this edition of Rouleur's guest editorial panel, brought up the subject of pianos in our discussions about content, having previously read Invisible Women. She immediately had my attention because I play the piano, but she pointed out something I'd never considered before, that pianos are a standard size designed for the average male hand span and possibly even a larger than average male hand span and therefore not suited to purpose for anybody with smaller hands. The consequences are that some pieces are unplayable without compromise or adaptation. Even more seriously, female pianists can struggle with repetitive strain injuries caused by overstretching. When pianos were invented, their size was also a function of the manufacturing techniques at the time, but in the modern day there's no need for pianos to be a uniform size, and if smaller pianos were more common, music would be more open to more people. I've experienced the same thing around bike design, Roundtree said in our discussion. Components are one size fits all, which means that size fits the average or above average male. There are two that stand out, brake and gear levers are physically too big and awkward to use for hands that are smaller than those of the average man. And crank length. I struggle against standardised components and we're conditioned as women to accept the suboptimal. Design teams are typically men and it doesn't occur to them and also it's technically difficult to make brake levers smaller, but it has a knock-on effect on safety. If you look at a front-on shot of a women's road race bunch, there are lots of elbows out from moving their grip on the handlebars. Lizzie Deenan, another member of our panel, said that she had suffered from a chronic hip injury for years. It was only when she met a physio who asked her if she'd tried shorter cranks that the problem was sorted out. It was a liberation, she said. Within one pedal rev, the hip injury had gone because I was finally on cranks that fit me. I shouldn't be riding the same length cranks as Jasper Stuyven. After the initial editorial meeting, Roundtree explained more about her frustration with uniform component sizing and design, which, like pianos, are consequently suboptimal for more than half of the population. Roundtree is a lifelong cyclist. She loved bikes as a young child, started cycling at 12 and worked in a bike shop in her mid-teens. She became an elite rider, winning the British National Cyclocross Championships three times between 1999 and 2003, and also achieved podium places in the National MTB Track and Road Race Championships. In 2006, she set up Isla Bikes, which began as a bike company for good quality children's bikes. Roundtree felt that most existing children's bikes were poorly made and were more likely to put people off becoming lifelong cyclists than encouraging it. All through her racing career and from her experiences of working in a bike shop, she encountered examples of suboptimal bike design. On a micro level, she had the engineering interest to do something about it, but she also realised she couldn't be the only person experiencing challenges with equipment and that things needed to change on a macro level. It became apparent in my early 20s and I started to get frustrated with the limitations of my own bikes, she said. My family background at home was that if something wasn't the way you wanted it, you made it how you wanted it to be, clothes that didn't fit or bikes, 
I started changing things or just making things to fit me better. I felt the impact of that on my cycling. These things do not mean that you can't ride a bike, but the experience is suboptimal. Then you extrapolate that to somebody starting out who is not confident. What is the impact on them of those things not being right? I believe that for some people, the impact is that they don't bother. They don't come back to it. Roundtree uses simple maths to explain her position. You have the male spectrum of sizes from small to large, with a mean in the middle of that. Then you have the female spread of sizes from small to large, and you have a mean in the middle of that. Generic bike parts are designed around the average man, which means they are a bigger size than optimal for most women, she said. Roundtree has stepped back from day-to-day -day running of her company, but as a bike manufacturer, she could easily adapt frame designs to suit smaller sizes. Componentry, on the other hand, is a much more complex issue. The engineering is tricky, especially since brake and gear levers are integrated, so it's not necessarily a case of just making smaller widgets, and the sector is dominated by very few big players. Making frames more suited to different sizes is easier to do when you're just cutting tubes to different sizes, she said. There have been lots of improvements in that area, and there have been improvements in the area of contact points. Saddles have improved dramatically over the last few years, and you can get much smaller handlebars now. But the expensive to develop complicated bits, which only three, four, five or six companies in the world make, that's a really heavy investment and it's quite difficult to make them smaller. That's where I feel like I've been banging my head against a brick wall. Idler Bikes was a sizable customer for SRAM components, so Roundtree was able to get some time with a senior product manager at the company at the Eurobike trade show a few years ago. I prepared a presentation about drop bar levers and why they didn't work for us with detailed pictures showing some potential solutions. They thought it was amazing and raved about it. And then it seemed to me they forgot about it. Even at Eurobike 2023 recently, Roundtree was walking around the exhibition space, putting her hands on the dropped bars of display bikes to see how the fit was. If I pointed my fingers out straight from being in the drops, as you would if you were trying to brake, the tip of my longest finger didn't touch the back of the brake lever. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruler, and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine, or visit our website at ruler.cc. This edition of Ruler Conversations was produced by Joseph Perry of Content is Queen. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.